This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX. That's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the late part of March 2018, The Ides, I believe it's called. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thank you. Good to see you too, David. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. First of all, the talk this past week has been of trade wars and tariffs. We're going to look at these economic cudgels with a lens of Catholic social teaching and the common good. Next, we'll be looking at a Supreme Court case that heard oral arguments recently, Janus versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. It's a case that might limit the mobility of public sector unions in the public square. We'll put on our rerum novarum goggles and dive in. And in our last segment of the show, we're very happy to welcome our guest, Jim Keane, senior editor at America Magazine. We're going to talk with Jim about the recent news about the canonization of Oscar Romero. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add bonus audio, extended discussions, or interviews. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you that you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. And we should mention, Dan, that there's a special offer going on from Franciscan Media right now. Everyone that signs up as a Patreon supporter during Lent will receive a copy of your book. Which book is that? It is The Last Words of Jesus. Meditation on Love and Suffering. And that is at any level. So if you want to get in on that offer, you still have a few weeks left to do that, and we would welcome you aboard. Thank you so much. And we've had a lot of people join the Patreon guild. Is that a good word? The Patreon guild? I like that. Yeah, the Patreon guild uh, over the past— The Patreon pack. The Patreon pack over the last couple of weeks, and we just want to say again thank you. For those that have joined at the $15 or above level every month, you also get a copy of Dan's book, God is Not Fair. And we'll be sending those copies out in the next couple of weeks. And just thank you again for being a supporter of the show. And even if you don't support the show and you just listen, thank you for that too. But especially thank you for our supporters. Especially thank you for that. How have you been these past couple of weeks? David, I'm doing really well. It's it's per usual a busy couple of weeks, but good uh, few weeks. Two weeks ago, and I can't remember if we talked about this on the last episode, but I had the great honor and privilege of baptizing my niece, Ashling. So I was with the family, and that was wonderful. And then last weekend, was able to escape the cold winter weather of Chicago to go to the hot, steamy march of New Orleans to run a half marathon. It was my sixth half marathon. I'm a, I'm a for the, our listeners who may not know, I'm, I'm a kind of a running enthusiast. That's my favorite hobby. And so one of the nice things is occasionally I have the opportunity to go and run races. And it was not the worst race I've ever run, but it was not pleasant. And I think I, I made a vow to myself around mile nine that I got to stop agreeing to do road races in weather that is not 
you know, consistent with the weather I'm training in. So running in 30 degree weather, snowy Chicago, and then going down to where it's like a hundred percent humid and 70 degrees and sunny, my body just didn't know what to do. And so it was, there were parts of it that were unusually unpleasant for me. Did you have a chance to enjoy some of the New Orleans culture? Like, did you have a beignet at Cafe du Monde or anything like that? Well, I, I didn't go uh, full out tourist like that, but did enjoy the local cuisine. I love New Orleans. It was my second time being there. And so uh, one of my favorite things, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of of the uh, the kind of uh, debauchery of... of no. Yeah, kind of fried dough and hedonism. Yeah, no, Canal Street's the main street. It's, it's the other Bourbon one. Street. Bourbon Street, that's yeah. it. How could I forget Bourbon Street? But it's not nice to be able to pop into any kind of restaurant or, or pub and, and have live music and, uh, you know, a good spirit among the people. Went to the vigil mass on Saturday night at the cathedral for the Diocese of New Orleans and was very impressed with, you know, the welcome, the hospitality, the presider who was the rector of the cathedral uh, welcomed everybody at the beginning and at the end of mass, particularly tourists, very gracious. But the whole community prayed what they called the family prayer. And it was a prayer about reconciliation and peace, a prayer about justice in the face of racism and violence uh, in our country, in our communities. And I have to say, you don't see that in a lot of diocesan cathedrals. You know, this is the the kind of sea, the, the home base or mother church of the diocese. And so I was very impressed. So a shout out to the bishop and to the rector of uh, the cathedral, St. Louis Cathedral, St. Louis King of France, also patron saint of the secular Franciscan order, but very impressed with that application of the gospel and proclaiming the prophetic mission of our discipleship. David, how the heck are you? Well, that's a good question. So first things first, here in the studio, we've managed to get some new equipment. And so among other things, we've finally been able to get the phone hybrid working. And for those that are not technology wonks, that's basically the gizmo that allows us to record interviews over the phone without having kind of weird talk back and strange sounds and all that. So it's it's a it's it's one step closer to actually this being like a real radio station. And I'm also currently presiding over our new soundboard and I'm very pleased about that. He so, is very, very pleased about it. It's am. also very impressive for somebody who doesn't know all the uh, production technology and insights and these sorts of things. It's it's very intimidating. It looks very cool. And hopefully you can hear the effect because our, our voices are made so magical and, and nice now. <laughs> well, I will say that sonically, this is a very solid board. And having been producing the show and all of my shows recently on um, basically the board that I had left over from the days when I was in a rock and roll band, it's nice to actually be on a board that is more purposed for radio. So I'm pleased about that. So that's all the good news. The bad news is that the IRS has decided that March is the time when small companies like mine, Sandberg Media, have to file their taxes. So everybody else thinks the tax day is April 15th. My tax day has actually been March 15th. And so for the past several days this week, I have been frantically getting together all of the paperwork for that. And so I'm happy to say that we're on the tail end of that. My wife stayed up with me last night to kind of add up columns of numbers and all that. But we, we're in good shape, and I think we'll be able to file on time. And that's that's a blessed thing. It is. Amen. And I did did not realize that until you told me yesterday that the LLC, the small business stuff, it needs to be in a month early. That is seems unfair. Well, yeah. And last year, we actually got fined because nobody told us. Or if they told us that, it didn't register. And so we managed to get the fine worked out, thankfully, and, and got, got that re rescinded. And then this year... We learned our lesson, and we're not going to be late. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is also a public service announcement yes. to our listeners who are small business owners. Yes, although by the time that you hear this, it'll be like the next day. So we'll say the rosary yeah. for you. Yeah, or the day before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the 14th. So yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. You'll have 20, you have 24 hours if you're listening hours. to this now. Yeah. But beyond that, uh, we've had just uh, – this has just been a really wonderful season, and we've really added some new things and I've really been enjoying not only the chance to be with you, Dan, but all the people that have been joining us. And I want to thank you for kind of pushing and encouraging that because I think it's really added a wonderful element to the show. Thank you. Yeah. So for our first segment today, we're going to be talking about the recent conversations that have been coming out in the wake of Donald Trump's comments about the imbalance of steel and aluminum in the world market and the notion of raising tariffs and uh, increasing the cost of Chinese steel and other milled goods that are coming in and the notion of 
trade wars. Now, I'll be honest with you, Dan, I'm not a Victorian, and so I haven't thought about the notion of trade wars and tariffs and all of that in my lifetime, really. It has not been a a factor for me. So what are we even talking about here? Well, I can tell you why. And the answer is because you are not 90 years old. Exactly. The, exactly. Last, the last time, as economists have been pointing out, the last time we've had a, a full-blown quote-unquote trade war, which is admittedly, it may be an apt term, but I think it evokes, I don't know, some confusion in the minds of listeners. You know, what, what do you mean trade war? How, how does this work? What, what it effectively is, is a, uh, yeah, a battle, a, an eye for an eye, a, a, a tick for tack sort of process in which countries make it more difficult for other countries to sell their products, to export their wares or services. And the idea of a trade war is this kind of mutually assured destruction or retaliation. So I mentioned you not being 90 years old. The last time we really had something like this was in the 1930s. And as I understand it correctly, what was going on was in the wake of World War I, there was uh, an increase in nationalism, not just in Germany, although we'll certainly see with Nazi Germany, you know, an emergence of very overt nationalism, but we see it in places like Italy, places like France, even in places like the United States. And a very similar thing to what President Trump has proposed here unfolded in the early 20th century. And, you know, the U.S. basically raised tariffs on uh, imports from other countries and places like Japan and Germany and the United Kingdom and France retaliated and did the same thing. And it just so happened that this isn't the cause, as economists point out, of the Great Depression, but it certainly exacerbated what happened. All this comes down, you know, and then actually contributed to uh, the precipitation of World War II. So you have a rise in nationalism, you have the isolation and demonization of other nations, right, because of the decreasing economic viability of the respective countries, you can easily see the downward spiral. So what we have here is, as economists have warned, including President Trump's own top economic advisor, Gary Cohn, former CEO of Goldman Sachs, who just this last week resigned from service in the White House, he had warned President Trump, do not do this, because whereas raising tariffs on Uh, commodities like steel and aluminum would be good for a small number of people who work in the metal production industry in the United States, places like Ohio and Indiana and so forth. It would be devastating to all of those who, because of their industry, because of their work, because of their production, need to purchase these metals. And it sends ill will to our allies, including the European Union, including our neighbors to the north, the Canadians, who are one of the largest uh, suppliers outside of our own production of steel. And so it's just a, it's a domino effect of ill will, and it's already signaled retaliation on the parts of other nations, including our friends. Let's take two steps back. First of all, when we say the word tariff, I've been using this as if I know what that is, but maybe I don't. What is a tariff? Tariff is, in in essence, a tax on imported goods. Okay. And so basically when something crosses our border that's been produced in another nation, it comes in and it, in addition to the cost of shipping it and the cost of buying the good itself, the government is adding some cost on top of that. That's correct. And then where does that cost go? Does that go to like help buttress the steel industry here or does it just go into the coffers of the United States or do we even know? I I don't really know, but it certainly doesn't go into the pockets of your average U.S. citizen, that's for sure. Now, my understanding as I've been listening to the commentary about this is that what we're talking about is actually not a huge amount of steel. Like America already makes like 90 to 95 percent of its own steel, particularly I think the high it's a little, steel. Yeah. Yes. Certainly maybe the more high quality stuff. I, I heard just this morning from the New York Times that, that we make about two thirds of our own steel. Okay. So that, but that means that we're talking about mostly cheaper steel and not a huge, well, I mean, relatively probably a large amount if I was to have it dropped on me, but otherwise... <laughs> really, when we're talking about steel, any amount is a lot when it's yeah. dropped on you. Yeah, <laughs> but but we're talking really about the kind of steel that we're talking about, if I'm following, is the kind of steel that if you want to go to Walmart and buy something that has kind of a, a good kind of cheap durability, not like a fine tool, but maybe like, you know, just a, a piece of shelving or something, this would be the kind of cheaper steel that we'd be talking about. It seems to me that that's right. Yeah. And 
And so if we're looking at it that way, a listener might look and say, well, what's the problem? So we, we want to make sure that the steel that's being made is, you know, American steel is the best quality steel so that people will choose that quality over these others. And we already know that the quality is better than what's being imported. So what's the problem in adding a little bit of extra cost to that set of shelves that I might buy at Walmart? The, the problem is a couple fold. One is from the U.S. perspective. Whereas President Trump is touting this uh, campaign promise, which is why he's so adamant about pursuing this. It's, it's a promise he made in the Rust Belt to those who are directly involved in the, in the steel and aluminum production industries. You know, a cynical way to look at this is it gives him an opportunity to be cheered on by his constituents, you know, a very, very, at this point, very, very small minority of the U.S. population, but a lot of people who work in these traditionally blue-collar uh, labeled kind of lines of work. And so he could go back to West Virginia or go to places in Ohio that are in steel production and have a, a, a rally and be cheered on. The problem is that, in fact, it will, this kind of tariff, this sort of trade policy will, in fact, help those who are directly involved in the production of these metals. But it will hurt every other industry because the other, you know, 330 million people who live in the United States depend on, you know, a certain influx of cheaper metals, as you rightly pointed out. So that's one thing. Uh, and it's going to raise the costs of, because, you know, we cannot produce everything that we need. It's going to raise the costs on everything from, you know, the little steel shelf you need for your basement to the purchase of a car to the building of buildings, including skyscrapers and the rest that depend on steel for their frames. So that's internally, and that's basically Trump is helping us again. This is kind of his modus operandi, right? He helps a small group of people, in this case, admittedly, by and large, working class people, but disadvantages and harms a larger population of folk. And so this is this happens at every turn, right? And, and it seems to be the cynical reading is for the optics. More dangerously, this threatens the stability and good relationships we have, I should say, further threatens with our partner nations around the world. And we've seen in the strong response from the European Union, we've seen in the strong response of uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, uh, we've seen in the strong response of our Asian allies that, that this is not going to go well and that they're going to retaliate in terms of putting taxes, putting tariffs on our exported goods, particularly those that are most iconically American. I mean, there's, it really is almost, you can't make this stuff up that when, you know, members of the World Trade Organization or the European Union give press conferences and they're like, Levi's are going to be really expensive. Bourbon is going to be really expensive. We're putting tariffs on Harley Davidson's and so forth. You know, all these things that you associate is, is particularly American. That's what, the second thing. The third thing I would say is, and this ties us back to the last time that this unfolded and the dire consequences that followed. Uh, again, it's not directly responsible for the Great Depression nor World War II, but it had, as economists and historians point out, a part in that. And what we see is we have a very unstable time right now. We have, we have a lot of destabilization in places like our relationship with Korea, within the European Union itself, with Brexit and so forth, uh, the threats of trans, uh, transnational uh, terror, you know, uh, these, these kind of guerrilla-type operations that are not necessarily located in a sovereign nation state. It, it, these are really sensitive times. And we are in a globalized world where we are knit together economically. We saw this in the downturn with the mortgage crisis in the United States in 2007, 2008, and how that had devastating consequences rippling through the entire world. And it took the better part of a decade to try to right that ship. This sort of thing, this, this retaliation game of, of tariffs will have a similar or could have a similar effect. So it's it's incredibly unjust. It seems economically foolish, and it seems like a very short-sighted decision. Well, so far we've been talking like good planned political economists, but let's change the tack now and actually ask the question through the Catholic lens. Why are 
imbalances in trade? Why are destabilizations of nations? And why is more expensive steel an issue that Catholics specifically should be thinking about and worried about? I, I can think of a couple of reasons. One, we, we don't want imbalances in the nations to lead to violence and war. That certainly, that's a bright line issue. But let's break it down because one would think that the ability for for people to make a living wage and the ability for people to to have an honest living, and I'm thinking about the steel workers in Ohio, that seems on the face of it like a, a Catholic issue. People need to be able to have a good quality of life. So why should Catholics be concerned about the effects that this uh, that this tariff regime is going to have? Yeah, as you put it, it's it's you're exactly right. But th- there's a kind of a false dichotomy, which is to say that it's either you know we have to impose these these radical and economically nonsensical policies to benefit a small group of workers or they get screwed over. <laughs> no, there are other options. And I think that's that's one thing to name. From the Catholic perspective, I mean, one, the core tenet of our social teaching, of our, our Catholic ethics, is the preservation, protection, and promotion of the common good. And so there are three kind of traditional elements of uh, what constitute the the common good. The first is the respect for the human person and his or her rights. So you're right. On that point, the rights of steel workers in the United States need to be protected and they have a right to work and they have a right to earn a just wage and to care for their families and to live reasonably well. The second thing is, however, social well-being and development. This is where we begin to get into some, uh, you know, difficult areas with this policy and can it be supported by uh, Roman Catholics from the vantage point of Catholic social teaching and our ethical teaching around the common good. This does not promote social well-being and development. It actually seems to, from the economic perspective, provide the opposite, a threat to development, a threat to social well-being. And then the third thing is that the common good is about peace which, as the church teaches, and I quote here, it's the stability and security of a just order. Well, as we saw, lest we repeat history, what happened in the 1920s and 30s is this kind of destabilization around the economy in a global, an increasingly globalized world, which is more the case today than it was 90 years ago, leads to the dissolution of peace. It's going to be problematic. And we already see that in the rhetoric and we see that in the retaliatory processes and, and tariffs that are being proposed. Now, one of the things that gets thrown around and that I've heard on the radio uh, over the past few days is the rhetoric that says we've been taken advantage of both by our competitors, but also by by nations that are supposedly our friends. We've gotten the short shrift. We've gotten the short shrift. So let me put it to you. As the superpower, are we more called to defend our turf? Or is there a Catholic case to be made for the superpower actually saying, yeah, and, you know, we're going to sometimes in the world, we're going to get the short end of the stick. And that's just the price of being the number one nation with the greatest GDP and all those things that in order for the common good of the world to flourish, there are times when we're going to have to give in an economic sense or to take the shorter, the worst end of the deal in the economic sense, and that that's okay in the greater scheme of things. Is that the argument that's being made? I don't think it's a good one. <laughs> in, in the sense that, you know, again, the promotion of social well-being, peace and justice and the dignity of all people, that, that's the primary focus. But it's not, it, it isn't something so sectarian as to say that it's only for steel workers or only for coal miners. You know, we do have a right, the church teaches, to our... Uh, nation-state sovereignty and uh, right to defense, right to promote the common good within our borders and so forth. And so obviously it's no, but I, I just think it's, it's it's kind of a bizarre thing that, again, a false kind of dichotomy that's presented. No one is proposing, in, in contradistinction to the Trump administration's tariff policy, no one's proposing that we roll over and do stupid things to harm our economic advantage. The issue, though, is one of of selfishness and greed. You know, you use the language of superpower, and I think after at least these four years of the Trump administration, we're going to have some serious questions about whether or not we remain a superpower because our soft influence around the world is, is daily decreasing. 
And so what kind of power the United States actually has on the international level is, is, a, is an open question right now. And if you are a German citizen, again, it's curious that right now Angela Merkel has much, much more, I think, uh, influence and control in, in, uh, in soft politics and so forth than the United States does. Part of that has to do with the state of their economic standing versus ours. That's a digression. To your point, I would say that you know, another principle of Catholic teaching is the preferential option for the poor. And so if we are, and we still are, though we may not be the sole superpower anymore, we are still an affluent nation that is powerful and, and, and to a degree influential. And so we have a responsibility to promote um, policies internationally and at home domestically that cares for those who are struggling, those who are in precarious states of life. And that goes, I think, on the macro level to nations as well. So, no, I don't think, you know, a so-called America first policy is a good policy from a Catholic perspective. We do have not let America be taken advantage of. I think that's a fine sort of position to take. But America first is not in, in a comfortable alignment with Catholic teaching. Well, there's a lot more to say, and we'll certainly come back to this, I'm sure, as this topic unfolds. But for right now, we're going to leave the discussion here and move on. So you're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're going to switch gears now uh, and talk a little bit about an argument that was heard by the Supreme Court very recently, and this is... Janice V. It's a nearly impossible to pronounce word. Acronym. It's, yeah. it's A-F-S-C-M-E. David, let's begin there. Well, what is that? That's the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And it would be... Woo! Yes, it would be what you would term a public union as opposed to a private union. And we can get into the, that distinction and the various... The various ways that those two types of organizations, public and private unions, have had better or worse faring over the last, say, 15 years. But So like a private union, just, just for a short uh, contrast, would be something like the Teamsters. Yeah, so you have, a, you have a, a privately held company or a corporation, and you have, you have groups of people that are paid within that as employees. And the traditional model back in the day was every one of those negotiated their salary individually. Well, over time and in the early part of the 20th century, we had a lot of push towards what we call collective bargaining, which is a fancy word for not each individual negotiating their pay rate, but rather a block of workers coming together and negotiating their pay rate en masse. And the reason why was because the owners of the corporation, the owners of the company had capital and the capital allowed them to have staying power to outlast the individual. So an individual came and said, I want a pay raise. And they said, well, that's great. I'm going to fire you <laughs> and, and I'm going to hire somebody else at a lower rate. And so what the collective action allowed for workers to do was to come and say, well, if you fire this one person, you're going to have a sit-down strike or a walkout and your plan is going to go down flat and you're not going to have any production so you won't have any capital anymore. So it allowed economic leverage against against those that had economic leverage against individual workers. Now, that was – we're talking about on the private level. It gets more complex when we talk about it in terms of public sector employees, but it's a similar notion. Which is directly related to this theme. So let's take a step back and, yeah. and let me say that – 
you know, for our listeners, you may have picked up over the last two seasons that David and I are both SCOTUS nerds. I am a nerd of the 13th century Franciscan friar and philosopher and theologian, Blessed John Dunn SCOTUS. David, however, the lesser SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. So with that, let's let's talk about this case centering around, I believe it's Mark Janus. Is that his name? Yes. And he's an Illinois resident and he... He is a public sector employee, and he is— Meaning he works for the government. He works for the government. So basically, the taxpayers ultimately pay his salary. And that's what adds the kind of strange wrinkle to all of this, because private sector unions have had a series of decisions that have basically eviscerated their ability to do things like collectively bargain and utilize the kind of leverage and pressure we've been talking about. But but public sector employees have still managed to have a pretty strong union and a, and a pretty, pretty strong union protections. But now with this decision and some other decisions that are coming down the pike, that is under attack. Interesting. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what this case is all about. Well, as, as I've said at other points in this podcast, a lot of the pivot point for Supreme Court decisions probably in the last 20 years now, have dealt with what we might call not a a privileged right, but rather a right that is filtered through the notion of speech. And so this is another example where when you have a union coming in collectively bargaining on behalf of employees, one of the strange effects of that is that employees who are not part of the union and are not directly involved in the union can benefit from those collective bargaining. So the contract that gets negotiated can allow for benefits, raises, and other types of protections that benefit employees across the board. And that's due to some laws that were passed as well, so that you can't just, the union can't just bargain for itself, it bargains for all employees. Well, the flip side of that has been a decision where, well, if you're going to benefit from this collective bargaining action, then you need to pay into the kitty that helps to pay for this collective bargaining action. And so the notion of an employee who's not part of the union having to pay a portion of their wages into the union in order to receive this benefit, that's established law, and that's what we call good law, meaning that it has been kind of tested in the courts and it stood the test. Now, what's happening here in the Janus case, is that this gentleman, Janus, is bringing a challenge to that, and he's saying, my money, because the court has seen money as speech, my money is being used to support types of speech that I don't like. Now, there's a little bit of gray area here, because sometimes unions make political speech, and sometimes unions make collective bargaining speech, if we want to think of it as speech. And his notion is, well, I certainly don't want any of my money being used for political positions that I don't support. And actually, that's fine because there are laws in place that say that unions can't use this money that's collected from employees generally to to do that kind of political speech. But now the employee, Janice, is also saying, and I don't want my money being used for this collective bargaining action either, although I still want to benefit from the benefits. Yeah, there's 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 a little bit of a wanting to have your cake and eat it too sort of thing. Yeah, so it's it's a flip on a, an earlier decision called Abood. And basically that that was the decision that helped to establish this precedent that I'm saying where you have employees that are benefiting having to pay in. Now it's employees saying, well I you know, I still want the benefit, but I don't want my speech to be attached to this. And since money is speech, I don't want my money to be attached to this. Now, why is this happening is is an important question. And one question or one issue that's being raised by critics of this particular case being brought forward is that this was being selected as a test case in order to to really impact unions where unions can make a difference, particularly in elections where Democrats are being advantaged. So, for example, in Wisconsin, and this is different from this case, but in Wisconsin, we saw that once Scott Walker came into power, the legislature began passing legislation that said, we're going to support and we're going to promote and we're going to allow for collective bargaining and economic support for unions that supported us, like the police and the firemen, but we're not going to allow or we're going to eviscerate the protections for unions that didn't support us, like service workers unions and others. And so you saw a very direct targeted political effect that targeted the type of speech, and I'm air quoting here, but the type of speech that a union would promote in the public sphere. So if the union was promoting 
a particular regime, like the Republican regime, then that would be supported and and advantaged, and it would be disadvantaged if it was saying the wrong type of speech. So we we're already seeing chilling effects on the state level, but now this has the has the possibility of making a chilling effect on the national or federal level. And it seems like you know, from the Catholic perspective, when it comes to our ethical teaching, our social teaching. You know, there are a couple goods at play here. On the one hand, the the dignity and rights of, of individuals is is a kind of a, a, a cornerstone that you know, Mark Janus does have a right to exercise his political liberty and so forth. And that would include within the context of the U.S. Constitution, the right of free speech and, and so forth. And yet, the right of the individual does not uh, supersede that of the common good. Well, and also, if I may... Catholic social teaching, and if I've read my catechism correctly, the rights of of individuals to gather together and collectively bargain is a Catholic principle. Right. That goes back to uh, a 19th century, one of the kind of the first, if not the first, one of the first documents, uh, Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum. I'm raising my fist in solidarity to Rerum Novarum right now. And, And that basically makes it clear that, uh, from the Catholic perspective, that workers have the right of association. So that's that's true. That's absolutely correct. And so but what's here, you know, we see a, again when I when I talk about a you know, a competition of goods or good, you know, we have various goods here. On the one hand, one has the right to associate, but one also has the right to exercise free speech, one one would assume. And of conscience. And of conscience, yeah. yeah. And so we see this play out in other ways too, you know, particularly around health care in the United States, where people will say, I don't want my tax money going to medical procedures that I don't support. And and view it either, you know, as a speech issue or as a moral a moral rights issue the ability to not support that. It seems to me like there's a parallel here. Do you see that as well? I mean, well, yeah, and and one of the things that, that we see in healthcare is that it effectively, when when we saw the the expansion of Medicare as an option and a whole bunch of states refusing to expand Medicare, the practical effect on the ground was that healthcare for a certain gap of the population became extraordinarily and even prohibitively expensive. And that became the rhetorical point to say, well, it's making premiums go up. You said it was the Affordable Care Act, and it became a, a way of trying to politically eviscerate the notion of healthcare for the common person. We're seeing a similar sort of pivot point happening here around this case. And I should say that in, initially it was Governor Bruce Rauner in Illinois who who sort of brought this case to the fore in 2015. He issued an executive order and a corresponding lawsuit that challenged these fair share fees that were established in the Abood case. But then there was a judge, a federal judge, who said that Rauner lacked standing. And that was when Mark Janis was chosen as the plaintiff for this case. But the, the practical effect of this, if this case is decided in the favor of Janis and the amici in the case – is that every state will become a de facto right-to-work state, which means the collective bargaining will be basically eliminated. The notion that a that an individual has any kind of collective protection against the power of capital to say, no, we're just going to fire you and move on, is is a is basically going to be eliminated. Now, there's going to be other interesting political positive effects that might come from this as well, but go ahead. I was just going to say that I think, you know, the, I've always dis- disliked the, the euphemism right to work, which is a way of talking about crushing unions. Yeah. You know, there's an irony in that, you know, and that's part of the uh, branding on the part of those who are anti-collective bargaining, anti-union, to call it right to work, that one's, you know, presumably an individual has a right to work, but so do all those who don't otherwise have a voice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I just want to highlight something you mentioned, too, in talking about the parallels with the healthcare discussion and laws in the United States, you know, and this is a, a concern for Catholics, a concern from an ethical perspective, who is most likely to be disadvantaged by the system? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in this case, it's interesting, you know, uh, one article that I read points and, and you know, here, here I quote Barrett Holmes Pittner, who says that today, jobs in the public sector unions that are threatened by Janus provide the single greatest employment opportunity for African Americans. This quote goes on to say that nearly 20% of African American adults work for the government in positions including teacher, child welfare services, male person, and everything in between. African Americans are 30% more likely than whites to have a public sector job. And so I don't think we should lose sight of the, the racial implications here, the gendered implications here. There are a lot of women who work in public sector jobs, particularly when you think of social work fields, fields like educators, teachers. 
I can't help but see that, you know, the poster child for this case is a middle-aged white man from Illinois. You know, I I don't want to, I just, I don't want to make too much of that, but also there is something to be made there that shouldn't be overlooked about the gender disparity too, in addition to the racial disparity in public sector work and the people who are in so many areas of our society disenfranchised and silenced or don't have as as much uh, access to power or voice. I think about the role of the, the public sector unions in West Virginia, where we saw over the last two weeks, the courageous and inspiring commitment of school teachers who were being crushed by by the state government, uh, especially the legislature, and they finally won their way. But it was because of the union. It was because of their ability to speak with one voice. And I just think we shouldn't lose sight of that, especially since the Catholic Church emphasizes you know, the rights of all people, all workers, to associate in this way. Well, and first of all, thank you for bringing up the West Virginia example. And I just want to give a quick shout out to two people that have been working on the ground actually in kind of very different forums. One is uh, Michael Iafrate, who's there in Wheeling and is really kind of working on the ground to be a Catholic voice for justice there. And so shout out to Michael Iafrate. But also I want to give a shout out to State Senator Stephen Baldwin, who has been really trying to make sure that as the legislature has been working behind the scenes to kind of block or mess up the ability of these teachers to to get the raise that finally went through. He's been sort of going on to Facebook and other sorts of things and has been really kind of rallying the, the, the voices to say, here's what's actually going on. Here's what's happening at the legislative level that you need to know about, and here's who you need to call. So just shout outs to those two. But I also want to speak directly to our Catholic friends at the Acton Institute and other places. Any Catholic who feels like the whole notion of a collective movement of people is somehow suspect. And following in the philosophy of someone like Margaret Thatcher in the infamous statement, man is a word with no plural, the notion that collective action is somehow always bad and that this notion that the the actions of individual people to bargain for themselves is somehow the ideal. If we look at canon law, the parish itself within the Catholic structure is seen and is classified under canon law as what we call a juridic person. So the notion of a of a collective group of people having a, a right in the way that a person has a right is something that is well-established in Catholic teaching. Well, it's something, too, that the Supreme Court, uh, yeah. I think, was a bad decision, but uh, also affirmed in the— uh, the case of political advertising, where you say that, you know, corporations have the rights of individuals. Well, too. Citizens United, and that actually goes back, I'm going to get really wonky here, that goes back to a railroad case in the 19th century, and we can do an entire other segment on that. <laughs> Some other but, time. But yeah. this this notion of a legally collective person that operates as a single unit, that's well established both in secular law, but also in Catholic understanding. That's right. So it's not some kind of foreign concept that we're talking about here. Well, especially if you think at the core of our faith, we talk about the centrality of baptism, which is the most essential sacrament. And in that, by virtue of baptism, we are incorporated. We become members of the one body of Christ. Amen. We talk about the communion of saints. We talk about the cloud of witnesses. So I I think, yeah, that's right, that we are, I'm reminded of of the writings of, of the late Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who wrote a lot about, you know, the need for us to remember that we are not uh, a collection of individuals, but we are a communion of persons. You know, I think sometimes this this kind of idolatry around the individual is what we see play out here, as you've rightly noted. Well, with that, just want to say that there's a lot more to say, like with all these issues, there's a lot more to say about this. And as this case unfolds, and particularly as the decision is brought down, I'm sure that we'll come back to it again. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. And when we come back, we're, we're going to be talking with senior editor Jim Keene from America Magazine. So stick around for that. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss topics from politics and current events framed by a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. And today, we have a special guest on the line. We are talking by phone with Jim Keane. He's a senior editor at America Magazine, and I'm going to let Dan go ahead and introduce him since, Dan, you know him, don't you? I do. Jim, thanks for joining us. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, David. We're, we're delighted to have you for a number of reasons. As David had just mentioned in the, the top of this segment, we're excited to hear, I know David and I both are, certainly, and, and so much of the, the global church is at the announcement of the forthcoming canonization of blessed Archbishop Oscar Romero. We, we thought of... We thought of you, given your familiarity with Oscar Romero's legacy, you know, prior to coming to America Magazine, our listeners may know that you were an editor at Orbis Books and been very familiar with uh, Romero's cause. You were actually there in person for his beatification in El Salvador, is that right? Yeah, we actually, um, the beatification was in May of 2015, and my boss and I, Robert Ellsberg, both kind of jumped on the opportunity to go down for the visit. So it was a huge mass outdoors in San Salvador in the city center, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, really a beautiful sort of very memorable occasion. What, what Was that your first time in El Salvador? It was. Over the years, met many people who had studied at the CASA in, um, program in El Salvador and certainly knew many Jesuits and Marinolers who had been down there, but it was. It was my first visit. Maybe we can just back up just a little bit, and you can help us and our listeners get a, a little bit of context. For those who may not know much about Archbishop Romero, can you just give us a, a summary? You know, why is this significant? Who was he? Uh, why is his cause for canonization a, a thing? Yeah, uh, to put it as briefly as possible, when Romero was made Archbishop in El Salvador, he was considered to be sort of a part of the traditional uh, network of bishops. He was connected to Opus Dei. He was very traditional in his understanding of the Church. But over the first couple of years of his reign as Archbishop, he really, the, the, the economic and social conditions in El Salvador made him take this more and more prophetic stance on things like violence, on economic repression. And El Salvador was a very deeply divided country where a huge amount of the land was owned by maybe eight or 12 families. And as Romero became more and more outspoken against economic inequality, he started getting death threats. And it, it, it seemed to transform him in a way to, to the point where he actually would say these, make these statements like, if they come and kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadoran people. And he really began to see himself as the defender of the poor and of the church in the sense that Christ wanted the church, a church for the poor and of the poor, to quote Pope Francis. And in the end, it did cost him his life. Uh, he was uh, killed in 1981 while saying Mass, became sort of a, 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 a legendary figure in the minds of the El Salvadoran people. Uh, Jim, do we happen to know who it was, or was the person ever caught who killed him? And do we know what the political connections of that assassin what the political connections were for that assassin. You can actually see the church. It's a little chapel at the hospital of um, uh, Providence in San Salvador where he was saying mass, and a jeep pulled up, and a man with a sniper rifle aimed through the door of the church to the altar and, and shot him through the heart. So this is not a, uh, an amateur effort, right? It's a trained sniper. It, it, the connection was clearly to the Salvadoran military, though no one has ever, I think, been actually charged with the crime. And I guess part of the reason why I'm asking that is because I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is just north of Fort Benning, where the School of the Americas was housed for a long time. And I've long had a, a worry that people who were trained at the School of the Americas were involved in, in this event and, and many other events in South and Central America. And I just I, I was wondering if there was ever a, a direct connection made. Well, certainly. I mean, there was no question that years later when uh, the Jesuits were killed in 1989, that it was by men who had been very specifically trained in counterinsurgency tactics at Fort Benning. In the case of Romero, one of the reasons why he was hated by the military is that the Carter administration was going to had announced it was going to cut off military aid to El Salvador because of a lot of the abuses that Romero was pointing out. It's very interesting, just on this kind of historic note, um, David and I in an, an earlier episode talked a bit about the Salvadoran history and the relationship between the training at what was formerly called the School of the Americas, now WINSEC there at Fort Benning, and the U.S.'s involvement, um, both officially and then covertly with the CIA and so forth in Central America. 
and how that led to at least the first major round of Salvadoran refugees and those granted temporary protective status in the U.S., and how grossly ironic, I guess, historically it is that here in the current administration under President Trump, there is this push to deport men and women and children from El Salvador. El Salvador, of course, as our listeners may recall, um, is one of the countries that President Trump identified by a certain uh, derogatory word, S-hole. I'll just leave it at that. But I'm wondering, Jim, uh, your thoughts about in, in the current context of U.S. politics and of, of the environment in which we find ourselves today, where El Salvador, again, is rising on maybe the political horizon and in particular, the Salvadoran people being demonized, they're kind of attacked, it seems to me, like bookends. On the one hand, a lot of the destabilization and violence in the country of El Salvador is directly traceable back to U.S. involvement. And yet here again, the U.S. government is, I don't know, not only turning its collective back to uh, these folks, but kind of re-harming them, I guess. Um, you know, how might the canonization of Archbishop Romero uh, how might uh, this news affect the conversation, if at all? What is the connection today for you? Well, you know, I went to high school in Los Angeles, and the, um, the neighborhood my high school was located in was almost entirely Salvadoran in the 80s and 90s because these people had fled the violence of El Salvador, which was a civil war where one side, the government, was being funded and supplied with weapons by the United States. And so you're right. There's no small irony that we won't call this place an S-hole country. Well, that's in large degree our fault. So I do think that the, you have this association on the part of people in the Trump administration that a Salvadoran is just a member of Mara Salvatruca, just a gang member, MS-13. And there is very little appreciation on our end of the, the beauty of the Salvadoran culture and the faith of its people. And so Romero, who is an incredibly popular figure in the American church, especially in the more progressive uh, wings, also can stand in for the anonymous faces of so many people who suffered, who fled the violence, who were victims of the violence, and who always deserved a voice and a face. And that's kind of what the role of a priest should be, isn't it? I mean, standing in for the people when there is the need for intercession, standing in for the people when there's the need for reconciliation. It sounds like even though he was maybe uh, a more hesitant figure as he was rising up through the ranks, once he became archbishop and was elevated to archbishop, it sounds like Romero really felt the grip of that responsibility. Is that a fair assessment? I think so, yeah. And I also think that maybe there was an intellectual ferment happening in El Salvador that he was able to take, learn some valuable lessons from. You have people like Juan Sabrino or um, Ignacio A. Correa who was killed or uh, Luis Segundo was killed, who were writing on the connection between the gospel message of liberation and the possibility for economic justice being tied to ideas of human liberation. And I think that affected Romero on a level that it probably had not in his priestly training. He was trained in Rome. He was trained in sort of very traditional manner. And I think he had an open mind, and that led to an open heart. If I can uh, give a shout out to uh, our friends in, in the Paulist uh, community, their produced film Romero, I think illustrates that really, really well. And it highlights another kind of complimentary, as I understand it, element in Romero's own conversion. And Jim, I really appreciate you naming the kind of intellectual sort of pedigree and, and influence, particularly in the, the Latin American liberation work of, of the Jesuits in particular. But um, if I recall correctly, there's also a very troubling personal experience that he had with the murder of a close friend, a, a, a priest named Rutilio Grande. And that, that, like so many experiences in our lives, Sometimes it doesn't really sink in, even if it begins to make sense intellectually until it happens to us personally. I, can you say a little bit about what that impact had on him? Right, sure. And, you know, just as a side note, the, the cause for canonization for Richelieu Grande is also open. And Pope Francis had a, has a particular interest in this because he admired Grande's writings and his work and his example. But, yeah, you know, Grande is one of these guys who actually his death was a, a sort of prefigured Romero's own martyrdom and the deaths of the Marinol sisters and various other folks over the years in the 80s, because it happened earlier, it's 1978. It's really the sort of the direct result of speaking up for the rights of small uh, farm owners, uh, campesinos, who were so often the victims of these large uh, farming conglomerates and sort of unofficial government militias that were roaming the countryside. You know, saying that 
just because a person protests does not mean that they are a part of an armed insurgency. Uh, they, you can speak up for justice as your right and as your duty as a Christian. That does not necessarily mean that you are uh, a subversive. Well, Jim, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar and may think that it's just a matter of flicking a light switch, would you mind just quickly giving us an overview of what a canonization process is like? How does one go from being a person of reverence and a person who is revered to actually becoming a saint? Well, I'm not an expert on this, but I will give it a try. Uh, Basically, it used to be in the past that these processes took many decades or centuries. Really, I would say since Mother Teresa, we have these new... Um, very sped up processes. It only took five years for her to be declared a saint. But normally, once a person's saintly virtues and heroic characters are recognized, they are named a servant of God, which is the first step. From there, the next step is beatification, which usually requires the establishment of, of a miracle attributed to the saint's intercession. So after the saint's death, someone prayed to them for intercession with God for a particular cause, a particular devotion, and that was granted. From beatification, then the final step is canonization, which re- requires, I think, a second miracle, and or a, there are other categories. You can be a martyr, uh, and so it can be from the spilling of your own blood. You can be a martyr for justice. You can be a martyr for the Church. You know, if you, there's a, usually an examination of your virtues and your faults. And so the government, I mean, the Vatican will ask um, an expert to write up a dossier on a particular person, and that will be studied by a whole committee at the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in Rome. Not bad, Jim. I I think that's pretty good. You know, one thing that you mentioned and and we've been talking about is the role of martyrdom, the title itself. And, I mean, one of the things you mentioned uh, in the assassination uh, recounting is that he was killed while celebrating the Eucharist. He was at, at the altar not only was he killed in the pastoral role as as the local bishop and in the sacramental role as a ministerial priest, but it, I think it's evident to anybody who knows a little bit about his story. You don't have to be an expert in Romero's uh, writings or history to know that he was killed because he was preaching the gospel, the gospel of peace and justice, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was martyred. He was murdered just a few years before I was born. So, you know, he's been kind of in one of the cloud of, in the cloud of witnesses around my own kind of personal faith development for for decades and it has always been perplexing to me why it's taken so long and i have some sense of some of the reasons around uh, pope john paul ii's hesitancy but i'm wondering if maybe you can speak to that a little bit about why cuz some of our listeners may be wondering too i mean he was assassinated in the 1980s, very clearly a prophet of his time and, a, and a, a, a preacher of the gospel, it seems like a no-brainer that he should be named a martyr and a saint almost immediately. So what the heck happened? One unavoidable reality is that uh, Pope John Paul II grew up under a communist regime and had, a, I think, a, an antipathy towards Marxism or the hint of Marxism that really did affect his understanding of a lot of church issues and a lot of the life of the church. And I think that he was not always getting the right information from Central America about what people like Romero were like, and or that these trends in theology and pastoral practice that were linked to liberation theology, he I think he was hearing or was perceiving that it was connected to Marxist lines of thought in the Church, and certainly there are parallels between liberation theology and Marxist social analysis. And I think that was part of it. Another part of it is that there's there's elements of the hierarchy in places like El Salvador that are not necessarily connected to theology, but really tradition. So you have a tradition of bishops whose personal piety is specifically not connected to political action, who see themselves really as spiritual leaders, not as political ones. And so I think that his his immediate successor and other powerful people in the hierarchy in the uh, church in El Salvador kind of found Romero's political speeches and his radio shows and all these other elements to be not the job of an archbishop and saw that as, as somewhat distasteful. If we think about that in terms of the resistance, is there anything to be made of the fact that Pope Francis is really the first bishop from the two-thirds world 
that we've seen in many centuries. And he's, he's speaking from a similar context, from a, a Latino-Latina context as well. Do you think that that also had a, a factor in the shift from resistance to this now becoming an issue of canonization? Oh, I think definitely. I think, you know, another element is is that just as John Paul II grew up under a communist regime, Jorge Borgoglio, Pope Francis, was Archbishop of Buenos Aires under an autocratic capitalist or authoritarian regime. And so he recognizes what Romero had to deal with. Jim, two final questions, maybe, and we thank you for your time. The first is, and I don't recall seeing in the announcements this week about the forthcoming canonization, about A, where it's going to take place, and B, if it's going to be in El Salvador like the beatification liturgy was, will Pope Francis be going to El Salvador? Do you know about that? You know, here's here's my guess. There's a World Youth Day in Panama, and if Francis comes to that, I would guess they'll do the canonization in San Salvador because it'll just be a quick flight from Panama. If he doesn't go to that World Youth Day or if they can't arrange the logistics of that, we could see it happen in Rome along with Paul VI. That's great. My own hope would be certainly for it to be in San Salvador. Same here. And so whether it's in San Salvador or whether it's in Rome, my last question is, will you be there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I guess I shouldn't say that without getting my boss's (laughs) (laughs) Father Matt Malone. uh... (laughs) If he won't pay for it, I'll pay for it myself. (laughs) That's great. Well, Jim, it's it's been delightful to have you. Thank you for sharing uh, your experience and insights uh, here with us. We'll continue to uh, keep a close eye on the unfolding plans for Romero's canonization. This is an exciting time for the Church, so thank you very much again. Thank you both. I appreciate it. The Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we certainly appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season and from this season. Thanks for listening.